good morning, everyone. I was uh, saddened uh, to hear of Phyllis Crandall's passing, and I worked with her for many years at Bronson Community School. She was our office secretary, and in those days, teachers had a, uh, students had a seven-hour classroom day, and teachers had one hour of a planning period during the day, so I might have fifth hour free and have a class each other hour. And one of the things that our contract said was that if a teacher got sick uh, unexpectedly, the uh, teacher who had a planning period that day could cover somebody else's class. And I can almost guarantee you that no teacher that I knew of ever wanted to cover another teacher's class. So the way that was handled is that Phyllis Crandall would come to our door. And when Phyllis came to my door, I knew what was going to happen. And yet she was so nice. She's one of the nicest people I've ever met. And she'd come to the door with just short and a great smile on her face and She'd say, Dave, Mr. So-and-so is not going to be able to teach fifth hour today. Would you mind if you would cover that class today? I'd say, no, Phyllis, not at all. I'd be glad to do that. She was that kind of person. If you knew her, what a joy to be around her. And in the hustle and bustle of school and activity, and sometimes it got pretty rough and pretty raw, she was a shining light in our school, and uh, she was a believer. She knew the Lord Jesus, and I'm just, uh, my memories of her are really, uh, really sharp this morning. Well, look at the lights around the sanctuary, the auditorium this morning. Uh, They're beautiful, aren't they? Um, Christmas lights, I love them. I like to go around town and stop at places where In the past, we've known that lights have been um, in evidence. Uh, There's one neighborhood over by the First Baptist Church in Coldwater where the lights are very simple on that street. They they put a candle in a paper bag, and everybody in the neighborhood puts one right out in front. And as you turn the corner and you look down that street, you see the same lights lighting the way of the street. Very simple way of expressing the light uh, at Christmas time. And then uh, sometimes people get a little more complicated. There's another place over by Parker's Park. We like to go over there and park, and, and you turn your radio on to a certain station, and the lights actually sync to the music on your radio, kind of a snappy tune, and, and it's pretty elaborate, and um, the technology is wonderful. We enjoy that. My neighbor across the street has really gone in big with lights this year, and uh, he, t- he likes to turn his lights on around 4 o'clock, but... There's really too much light at 4 o'clock, so you don't get the, the real contrast between the lights and the darkness, the night. So he turns them on at 4, but by nighttime, it lights up uh, the whole four corners uh, that we are uh, situated in. So lights tend to keep us safe. Um, there's a lighthouse that's designed to prevent shipwrecks and I have a good friend, Kerry, uh, who worked uh, for CBPU, and he was out at uh, Gilead Lake, and he was um, reading some meters and doing some work out there. And 
he decided to take a shortcut to come back to his truck. So he decided to walk across the lake and find his truck over there, and um, he fell through the ice. And uh, eventually he was able to crawl out, and here he is in the winter, clothes are wet, frightened, and he looks around and he sees a light. And he goes toward that light, and he comes to a house. He raps on the door. The guy says, come on in. Got him a new set of clothes, sat him down at the table, read the word of God to him, and my friend Carrie became a Christian that night. It was a scary moment for him, and the light drew him to the Lord Jesus. Now, lights are not always welcome by many people, by part of God's creation. When our Steve decided to get married, he fell in love with a girl from Texas. They got married down in Texas in the summer, and it was hot, muggy, and uh, our daughter-in-law saw to it that we had a house to stay in. And so we had gone to the rehearsal, and it was dark, and we came to this house, and we flipped on the light in the kitchen, we walked into the house, and you should have seen the cockroaches just <laughs> take off, you know, and and then they were all gone. I didn't mean to upset you this morning, but <laughs> and they were gone. And so, but you know what? What Jesus said one day? He said, uh, "People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil." So there's this element of light and darkness, which is a major theme in the Bible. You can find 170-some references to light in the Bible. That doesn't include references to lamps and lampstands. And you can find just about as many references to darkness in the Bible. Light and darkness are major themes in the scriptures. Let me give you just a few. The Bible starts out with light and darkness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was darkness. And then God said, God spoke for the first time, and he said, let there be light. And after he said, let there be light, there was light. So God made that statement. In fact, the Bible says that God is light. God is love, but God is light. When the children of Israel were in Egypt, God sent a plague, the ninth plague. The ninth plague was darkness. Darkness fell upon the land of Egypt. But the children of Israel had lights in their houses. How God did that, I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. The psalmist loves to write about light. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them lead me to you. The psalmist wanted to know God. He saw the path to God through the light. The light was the truth. And there's that great verse in Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet is a light to my path. The Bible is full of references to light. Remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist? He made this statement in prophetic truth, to give light to those who walk in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There's a real connection in the Bible between darkness and shadows. Darkness and shadows. Simeon, an old man, 
who longed to see the salvation of Israel. He prayed that God would show him the consolation of Israel before he died. And sure enough, when he was in the temple, and Jesus' parents were in the temple, Simeon was able to hold the baby or the child, the infant. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for the revelation to the nations. This is how the Bible ends, too, by the way. In the temple of God in the New Jerusalem, God gives light. There is no darkness there. There's no night there. And the lamp is the lamb. So one of the great themes in the Bible is light. And Jesus is the light of the world. The world is a dark place. It's more than just messed up. It's lost. It's lost because it can't see God. It does not know God. It doesn't, it's not able to find him. And we have darkness in our hearts. And this darkness is ugly. The way the darkness is dispelled is through the light. So in Jesus, we move from darkness to light. John chapter 12, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is his understanding of why he came. Now, the United States of America spent billions of dollars to send a telescope up into space called the Hubble Telescope. And while it was up there, it was designed to take pictures of things that we couldn't see by taking pictures down here. Well, a few years ago, uh, it became clear that the Hubble telescope needed to be fixed. So we spent hundreds of millions of dollars to fix the Hubble telescope. Now, I don't know all the things that were wrong with it. But one of the things that was wrong with the Hubble telescope is that the pictures came back fuzzy and blurred. They had to fix the cameras on the Hubble. So they set a mission up, they fixed the cameras, and the Hubble started sending back clear pictures. Now, what did God do? He sent his son here to fix us, better yet, to create us anew, because we couldn't see clearly. Our vision was blurred, flawed. We were blind. So God sent a rescue mission to come here to help us so that we could see the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's called the gospel. So the church proclaims Jesus as the light of the world. He's the gospel. That's our message. In Jesus, we move from darkness to light. Now, in your bulletin and in the Bible, we have a reference to Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bible 
and I hope you do, would you turn to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Matthew 4, 12. Now when Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, when he heard that he had been arrested, Jesus had been baptized, Jesus had been uh, tempted in the wilderness, and John had been arrested, and since John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, that was his boyhood home, he was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth, which is near Capernaum, not too far, And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum. That's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. This Capernaum was by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of, and then he mentions, two fairly minor tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. And then look in your Bible, verse 14, the first two words of verse 14 are something like, so that. In the original language, that word is ahina, which is translated so that or that. And when you're studying the Bible, one of the best ways to study the Bible is to look for cause and effect. What did Jesus do? He went into Galilee. Why? So that, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Why did he go there to fulfill the Old Testament prophet Isaiah? Now, what did Isaiah say? Look at verse 15. In your Bible, it may be written in a little different form. It might stand out in your Bible to show that it's an Old Testament quotation. Here's what it says. Here's what Isaiah said. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles or the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, notice the connection between darkness and shadows, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There's, there's something about living here that's in the shadows. We want to be in the light. The shadow of death, and on them a light has dawned. In verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus went there to fulfill the prophet Isaiah, among other things. One thing that we do know is that Jesus knew the word of God, and the word of God for Jesus was the Old Testament. He was the word of God. He knew the word of God, and he came to fulfill it. So with that uh, connection between Matthew chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 9, we turn to Isaiah 9. And we'll spend the rest of our time this morning in the prophet Isaiah. So if you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, would you turn to Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah 
Now, I know that it's dangerous and sometimes unhelpful to pick a passage out of the Old Testament and we haven't looked at the context of it. This passage is fairly easy, however, to work with because if you want to get the historical context to Isaiah chapter 9, all you have to do is pick up your reading at chapter 7 and you'll get to chapter 9 and you'll see the context. The context of Isaiah chapter 9 has to do with Isaiah's word to King Ahaz. King Ahaz was the king of Judah. Jesus would be in the line of Judah. King Ahaz was going to be removed, and it looked like maybe the monarchy would end. But God promised that somebody from the tribe of Judah in the line of David would sit on the throne forever and ever. King Ahaz was worried that his kingdom was going to be overtaken by two kingdoms from the north. Ephraim, which is sometimes called northern Israel or Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, two kingdoms were going to gang up and attack Judah, and King Ahaz was scared. And Isaiah was sent to King Ahaz by God to tell King Ahaz, don't worry, they will not prevail. And so King Ahaz and we all have a choice to make. When threats and the crises of life, the disappointments of life, and the dangers in life, when they come crashing in on us, we have a choice to make. Are we going to believe and trust God, or are we going to try to figure it out ourselves in a fleshly, human way? What Isaiah does is say, Hey, King Ahaz, I want you to trust God. Now, how does he say this? Without taking too much time, look at chapter 8 and verse 20. Chapter 8 and verse 20. Do you notice the appeal that Isaiah makes? Verse 20. He mentions the word of God in three different ways. First of all, to the teaching, or the Torah, the law. To the teaching. You got a decision to make? Go to God's word, called the Torah, the teaching. And to the testimony. It's what God has to say to us about himself. Go to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, see how he sets it up? It is because they have no light of dawn or no dawn. They have no light. So what do we do when we have a decision to make or a crisis in our life? We could Google it. We could ask Siri. I sat at my table this morning thinking that I might bring that in, so I pushed my iPad and I asked Siri. I said, Siri, what is the meaning of life? And you know what Siri said? Siri said, she quoted from Wikipedia, some encyclopedia, and you ought to try this sometime. It's the worst thing that you ever saw in your life. Now, we may not go to Siri or... Google it, and we may go to cable television, or we may go to Facebook, or to, to our Twitter account. Did you notice in verse 19 how people who go to other sources chirp and mutter? 
And perhaps we could put in there Twitter or tweet. And verse 19 is key. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, people who had already, were already dead, who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should not we ask God what he thinks? That's King Ahaz's decision to make. King Ahaz said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to form an alliance with Assyria. And, of course, we know what happened to Israel because Assyria came down and put Israel in bondage. And after the Assyrians got through, the Babylonians came down. And after the Babylonians got down, it was done was the Persians. And after the Persians, the Greeks. And after the Greeks, the Romans. And one foreign power after another came down and took away the testimony that Israel had before the nations. And they wound up in bondage and in exile. Now, when you, when you inquire and when you trust and when you rest on another source other than God, that's the issue this morning. We're looking at the light of the world. The light is Jesus, and he wants us to turn to him and not to other sources. Look at what happens in verse 21. They will pass through the land. I'm in chapter 8, verse 21. They will pass through the land, and they will be greatly distressed, and they will be hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. You know how people are angry today? You know there's a lot of anger out there today? Where that anger come from? It probably comes because our expectations have let us down. And if we're not careful, look what they did. They will speak contemptuously against their king. Got to blame it on somebody. Let's blame it on our leaders. It's their fault. And they also blame their God. It's God's fault. If God is in charge, why did he let this happen to me? Most of the people under Ahaz did this. Some of them, however, didn't. We call that a remnant. It's a small group out of the large group who didn't go the way of the world. And so look at how Isaiah describes them in verse 17. I will wait. This is, I will wait patiently for the Lord. He seems to be hiding his face from me right now. You ever have that experience? You're a, you're a faithful follower of Jesus, and God seems to be hiding his face from you. It's temporary. God has a purpose in it. He hasn't really left from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Even though God seems to be hiding his face from me right now, I will hope in him. I will confidently wait, and I will patiently wait, because I believe that God's promises will come true. Look at verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, I hope this doesn't describe any of us in this room this morning. Distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will thrust, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is how chapter 8 ends in darkness. Because they did not trust God. Their faith was misplaced. It's not faith that saves. It's the one you put your faith in who saves. Now we get to chapter 9. 
And chapter 9 is this wonderful prophecy. When Isaiah spoke these words, 700 and almost 50 years before the birth of Christ, he said these words. 750 years. This is amazing. God is patient, and he fulfills the promises that he promised back in Isaiah's day. And so we get this passage, chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2, that we read from Matthew. Jesus went into Galilee to fulfill this passage. Now, in verse 3, we have a lot of songs that we sing at Christmas time about joy. Joy to the world. I think we're going to sing that one before we leave this morning. But look at verse 3. This is chapter 9, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. Here's something great to look forward to. A remnant, a small group will return. But what will happen ultimately and eventually is that there will be a great nation. In fact, many nations will come to Christ. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. There's, this verse is full of joy. Now, why were they full of joy? And let me, by extension, ask you this morning and ask myself, why am I filled with joy this morning? Your knees may ache. You may have a host of problems. But why would you be filled with joy this morning? There are three reasons. And these three reasons start with the word for, at least in my Bible they do. It's because. Why are they happy? Why are they filled with joy? Because. Verse 4. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. There are two allusions to historical events in the life of Israel. One has to do with the Exodus when they were in bondage to Egypt. And God had to remove the burden. He had to take the yoke from their shoulders. And he freed them. And they went through the Red Sea. And they went to the promised land. But they had to leave Egypt. God did that. God intervened. God is the one who intervenes in our life. And then the second reason in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is a military metaphor. This is an idea where the warfare has ended. The enemy has been defeated. God's people are victorious. God brings about the victory. How does he do that? Through the cross. Jesus defeated the enemy on the cross. He didn't only just intervene. He doesn't just intervene in history. But he's victorious in history. That's why we're full of joy this morning. God is a victor. He's a warrior God. He fought the battle and he won. And Satan was defeated on the cross. I'm happy this morning. I'm full of joy this morning because of what Jesus did for me. I can sing with my whole heart about the great victory that was accomplished. That's what verse 5 says. But the third reason is the most important reason. And the third reason is found in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. This child is born. This child is human. The virgin birth is really the virgin conception. The birth of Jesus was normal. The conception of Jesus was supernatural. 
Unto us a child is born. Jesus entered the human race. He identified himself with us. A child is born. And to us a son is given. It's a gift. Why am I happy this morning? Because Jesus came as a gift to us. And we open up gifts at Christmas time. The gift, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're full of joy this morning. It's a gift. And this is, says it's a son, but the son means a king. He's the king. He would be in the line of David. He's King Jesus. The child came and became a king. That's why we're happy this morning. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's the only king. He's the only way of salvation. That's why we're happy this morning. And the government shall be on his shoulder. You notice in verse 4, the burden in verse 4, the burden is on our shoulder. You notice that? And what does God do? He takes the burden off our shoulder. And where does the burden go? The burden goes in verse 6 on his shoulder. What a great substitution. God takes our burdens, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. He casts away our burden and puts it on himself. And his name shall be called, and there are four titles, four names. And each of these four names tell us something about the gospel. First of all, Jesus is a wonderful counselor, a wonderful counselor. He's a counselor. It means he's wise. And when Paul talked about the gospel, he spoke about the gospel in terms, he contrasted it with the foolishness of man and the wisdom of God. What's the wisdom of God? The cross. The crucifixion of Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so when the Bible says that his name, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. We go to him. He's the ultimate wise guy. He's the guy who knows everything. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Colossians. So his name is Wonderful Counselor. Secondly, he's a mighty God. That's why in the book of Luke, we talk about the birth of Jesus and Mary's pregnancy and her giving birth to Jesus. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 1. And with God, nothing shall be impossible. God is the mighty God. God is able to do exceeding abundantly all that we ask or think. God is a mighty God. Jesus is a mighty God. And why does that speak of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel, the message of salvation in Christ, is the power of God for salvation. He's the mighty God. He can do anything. And thirdly, he's an everlasting father. And we get kind of tied in knots on this one because we think this passage is about the Lord Jesus, and it is. It's about King Jesus. Why does Isaiah call him the everlasting father? From Isaiah's point of view, this child would be Emmanuel. Emmanuel, El, God. He is God with us. God has a compassionate, merciful, graceful quality to him. Isaiah didn't have a full-blown understanding of the Trinity, but he did have an understanding of who God was, that God is a compassionate God. So when we say that God is an everlasting father... There's a compassion in the Lord Jesus as well. We wouldn't be here today without his mercy and his grace. 
a number of years ago, I got a phone call from my uncle. There had been a heavy snowstorm in, I think it was in April. We were on spring break, so I was home with the kids in the backyard, and we were making a snow fort or something, and the phone rang, and I get on the phone, and it's my uncle, and he was crying, and my uncle never cried. And I said, what's the matter? He says, your dad is gone. He was up on the roof of his business. He was shoveling the snow off the roof. He had a massive heart attack and died. And my uncle found him. He saw the ladder. He went up on the roof and he saw him. God is an everlasting God. When you have things ripped away from you, you must remember this, that he's an everlasting God. And it will be forever. He will not let you down. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our God. That's the Lord Jesus. He's mighty God. He's a wonderful counselor, an everlasting father, and he's the prince of peace. I think when we get right down to it, the thing that we're looking for, maybe the most, is peace. Jesus said that he was peace, my peace, I give to you. The apostle Paul said that Jesus came and he preached peace. And he made peace. And he is our peace. Peace, we sometimes think, is the absence of war. I think it's a lot deeper than that. When it's the Prince of Peace that we're talking about, Jesus comes along and takes us a mess. Intellectually, psychologically, socially, emotionally, we're a mess. What he does is integrate us into a whole person. The best way to become who God meant us to be is to come to the light. Now, this passage pretty much ends at verse 7, and we see that he is a king who establishes a kingdom. And this kingdom is characterized by justice and righteousness. What's the kingdom like? How do you get into the kingdom of God? What's the connection between justice and righteousness? There's a song that somebody from Europe, I don't know, from Ireland wrote, In Christ Alone. And in the song, it says that when he, Jesus died, his wrath was satisfied. I guess it kind of rhymes. But technically, what happened on the cross is that when Jesus died, his justice was satisfied. His wrath was spent. His wrath was exhausted on Jesus, on the cross. What's the nature of the kingdom of God? How do people get into the kingdom of God? Through the cross, through the gospel, through what the Lord Jesus did on our behalf. What's the nature of the kingdom of God? It's a kingdom characterized by justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How do we know that God is going to complete the work that he started? How do we know that? Because this is how the passage ends. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This morning, I'm just kind of thinking a little bit about Jesus as the light of the world. We need a revelation of who he is, why he came, what he does on our behalf, 
And as a result, we're filled with joy. And so the telephone is saying to us, let's stand together and sing, Joy to the World.